Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Uneasy Train Explorers Club podcast, the place where curiosity is welcomed and no topic is too taboo to tread. I'm your host, Jonathan Doe, and I'm sitting here over Zoom with my good buddy, Andrew Dodge. Uh, Andrew is the host of the podcast Unforbidden Truth, as well as the owner of True Crime Auction House. And Andrew and I uh, just came back from a trip in uh, all over the South working on a documentary called If Trees Could Talk, A Conversation with Terry Hobbs which is centered around the West Memphis three case. How are you doing today, dude? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing? Pretty good. Um, so I definitely want to get into the documentary, but I kind of want to start at the beginning. What is it that got you into true crime? So my dad's a retired police officer and homicide detective, and my stepmom is a retired 911 dispatcher and a records clerk for the police department. So ever since uh, I was really young, I grew up on true crime and horror movies. My dad let me watch Chucky, Freddy, Jason, all that when I was, you know, three, four or five years old. And we would hear stories um, from when my dad was a police officer and homicide detective. And it just kind of, I guess it just kind of piqued my interest at an early age. And I became obsessed with true crime ever since I could read books. I was reading Helter Skelter and The Stranger Beside Me and it just kind of developed into a knack for true crime and kind of fast forward to when I was 18 years old um, to Philo Jablonski, my first serial killer that I actually wrote and visited ironically enough. And um, I kind of got into it heavy then from collecting murderbilia. Of course, I didn't know what murderbilia was then. Of course, I was just writing and uh, collecting at the time, but that's kind of how I got into um, the whole murderbilia aspect was my dad was a retired homicide detective and police officer and that's kind of how i developed a knack for true crime what can you tell us about that uh about you reaching out to philip jablonski and um uh getting a message from him and finally meeting him what was that whole experience like so at first when i first reached out to him i had no idea that you could even write convicted murderers i didn't know that that was a thing so when I found his information, I was like, okay, this guy's not going to write me back. He's going to get my letter and he's going to throw it away or it's just not going to reach him. And a few weeks later, I get a response back from him and Roy Norris. And soon it just starts to get ridiculously crazy. So many responses and writing so many people. I've probably spent an entire summer indoors just typing up letters and reaching out to people and when Jablonski wrote back, it was uh, it was quite the shock because I didn't think, like I said, that that I would get any responses from any prisoners. And the very first letter was talking about how he, you know, defiled his victims and carved I Love Jesus into the back of one of his victims. And I was like, well, this is kind of interesting. You know, this is kind of an interesting guy. And I eventually uh, sent my phone number to Jablonski. He would call me. And the first time he called me was kind of a you know, kind of odd, kind of like the first time Richard Ramirez called me, it was just kind of like, you know, what do I say? What do I do kind of thing? And uh, it just, it just, I guess, kind of spitballed from there. And I started talking to so many different people. I started visiting people, talking to people on the phone. And it just kind of, yeah, just kind of trickled from there. Philip Jablonski and uh, Roy Norris are some pretty big names to for to be the first people that you like talk to, which is pretty cool for people who are listening, who aren't really familiar with those two names. Can you give us some context on who they are? Yeah. So Philo Jablonski was a serial killer. Actually, they're both deceased now, but Philo Jablonski was a serial killer. He killed five people. He killed his first wife. 
um, his mother-in-law, an exchange student, I want to say, he carved I Love Jesus into one of his victims' backs. Um, Roy Norris was one half of the Toolbox Killers, who, in my opinion, are probably some of the worst serial killers, you know, that ever existed, that tortured their victims and raped them repeatedly over and over, and they actually recorded the the uh, the 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 violent assaults you know on on a audio tape and they were played in court for the jurors and i believe one juror had to excuse themselves to go outside and throw up when they heard a little bit of it what was it like talking to norris uh to be honest he was kind of boring he never did call me on the phone it was usually just um generic letters i did ask him one time if he ever had nightmares and he did tell me that he had a nightmare um, a reoccurring nightmare of one of his victims facing him and he couldn't get away, which I always thought was kind of interesting. I wish it still had that letter. Uh, <laughs> um, so how did this evolve from you just like kind of being a hobbyist, like talking to these individuals to you uh, forming um, something that you're actually at creating content and actually like doing something um, more creative with these resources that you started obtaining? So I started, so I started writing prisoners and, and it wasn't until 2015 that true crime auction house came along. So I had five years worth of all this shit that I thought was worthless until somebody was like, Hey, you know, you can sell this stuff and make a lot of money. So come 2015, um, I started a website called true crime auction house in which it still exists to this day and it's 2023 um where you can purchase letters artwork you know um any type of like serial killer memento and um i basically just just had so much stuff that i didn't know what to do with it so i was like hey i'm just gonna start a website up and see how that goes and i didn't expect it to really take off but unbeknownst to me thank you to dylan roof it kind of you know launched my website and kind of helped projected into the uh like mainstream murder billiard scene um you've told about me you've told it to me in person but um what can you say to the people listening about the whole dylan roof incident that happened so the the day that dylan roof was arrested i wrote him because his his address was available like like that like the moment he was arrested so i wrote him a letter um just basically it was a generic letter like i read to everybody and within a few days, I get a letter back from him um, asking me if my name is anglicized, uh, uh, if if there was any books that I can send him, blah, blah, blah. Long story short, I posted on my website for $1,000. It sells a month later. And all these news media agencies run with this story after I did an interview with the New York Daily News um, that I was this like white supremacist sympathizer and... I was this serial killer groupie that just befriended Dylan Roof for whatever reason. And that was my, that kind of left a sour taste in my mouth after that, honestly, because for one, I'm not racist. And for two, I'm not a Nazi or white supremacist sympathizer or anything like that. So that, uh, a, a sour taste in my mouth after the whole Dylan Roof incident. But Dylan, in the same sentence, Dylan Roof did help my business take off by, um, you know, posting his letter for sale on my website. And like I said, it sold a, a month later for a thousand dollars and I used a, a stamp to write them. So I thought that was a pretty, pretty good profit at the time.
Um, when you and I were hanging out for a week uh, doing our documentary, uh, you were getting phone calls like crazy from all different kinds of inmates and stuff. And I was, I was like, wow, like you're, uh, you really do have connections with all these kind of people. And I think people listening who are hearing like names like Dylan Roof and, and, um, and Roy Norris and things like that. Uh, what, how do you separate yourself or maintain having a relationship with individuals who have committed such, uh, horrendous crimes whether it's like sexual violence or or a hate crime or anything like that um how can you have a relationship with people who have done such horrendous things so to me um i don't judge anybody based off of their crimes or anything i don't judge anybody regardless if they're in prison or not um it'd be kind of hard to do this you know judging people yeah. um but it's not to say that their crimes aren't horrible because they are um and there there are people at the end of the day um and that's what i like to focus on is bringing the humanization aspect out of these uh these prisoners hence unforbidden truth um so and i can i can differentiate you know everything at the end of the day i don't i don't personalize things i don't i don't uh you know qualm under pressure or anything like that i i mean i can talk to inmates about their crimes or sexual abuse or anything like that and it'd be totally fine with me i i have like a veil that i put up and like okay no personal information you know gets relayed back and forth no personal addresses or anything like that um go towards these prisoners but i've been doing it for so long that i'm so used to everything that it's just like okay amanda taylor's calling i'm just gonna reject this call or i'm gonna take it or you know like my phone rings all day every day sometimes and i'll just like last night I had three people called back to back to back and I was like, I'm not really in, in the mood to be taking these calls. So screw it. <laughs> uh, have you ever talked to anyone where you felt disturbed or anything by what they were saying? Or um, have you ever had anyone threaten you or anything like that? Um, yeah, I've had, <laughs> I've had El Mano Negra, Jose Martinez threaten me probably a dozen times he was going to hang me shoot me stab me run me over have his amigos come and find me and tie me up and torture me um besides that nobody else has really ever like threatened me on that level um i mean i've had inmates say like oh i know where you live and this and that like but nothing really like like it was with jose martinez where he was like i'm straight up going to kill you and i even have a drawing of myself in a noose uh somewhere where because when he first was arrested i asked him because he, he said you know feel free to ask me whatever you want so i was like okay what's your method of execution how many victims did you have what states were you operating in did you operate in mexico and apparently he thought i was a police officer so he you know kind of went from like asking me anything to okay we're gonna look into you and my amigos are gonna find where you are yada 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 at the time, I had told him that where I was going to college, and I made a mistake of that. And he told me that he was going to have his um, compadres come and track me down at my school and kidnap me and all this. But obviously, that never happened. But that's the only time I really ever been threatened. And I never really felt, you know, like in fear of my life or anything like that to the point where I did anything or said anything. 
So when he was threatening you like that, you you didn't take it seriously or you didn't feel threatened? No, I just laughed. I just like, that's funny. <laughs> um, so that's kind of like, how did how did this go from you just kind of talking to people to you starting uh, your podcast? So I wanted to do something more positive. Um, not to say that murderbilia is like a complete negative thing because it's not people like Taylor from Collectibles are you know, archiving certain things and whatnot, but I wanted to, I wanted to focus more on interviews than actually collected murderabilia. And I wanted to, you know, kind of share with the public what I've been doing since 2010. So I figured I would start recording audio and video interviews with not only prisoners, but survivors of violent crime, you know, professionals in the mental health and law enforcement field, et cetera. Um, so I, I wanted to, uh, you know, kind of, I guess, start a journey with people, having people being able to, you know, um, sit in on these interviews with me, you know, per se, um, learning learning about new cases nobody's ever heard of. Um, and I just figured, you know, like, I've always wanted to interview prisoners. I've interviewed prisoners in person. So why not do it um, in a form, you know, have it out there for other people to listen, not just myself. And it's kind of blown up a little bit since then. And it's, you know, a steady, steady little income. It's a, it's a steady little hobby too. And I, I enjoy it. I, I enjoy it more than anything that I do, to be honest. Um, What are some of your most favorite interviews you've done? You've, you've talked to some heavy hitters. Um, You had like a four part interview with Todd Kolhep. Um, what are some of the ones that are, are memorable to you? So I'd say my top interviews, of course, would be Todd Colehep, the four-part interview, like you just mentioned, a two-part interview with Nico Jenkins, um, a vampiric murderer named Joshua Rudiger, who is probably one of my favorite interviews to date, who literally cut the throats of his victims and drank their blood and believes he's a 3,000-year-old vampire. Um, I interviewed Dr. Ann Burgess, which isn't out yet, but that that's probably one of my favorite interviews I've done to date, just because she's like a, a legend in the field. And I mean, she's Dr. Ann Burgess. <laughs> um, there are so many interviews that I have that are favorites of mine. I just like William Holbert, Dwayne Harris, um, William Dennis, a guy who, who dressed in a werewolf costume and cut the almost nine month old baby out of his ex-wife's stomach. Um, there's just so many interviews that are, are memorable to me. Um, but, but I'd say Todd Colab, Nico Jenkins and Joshua Rudiger would probably be my top three, um, favorite interviews that I've done today. You talked about Jenkins, but can you talk about the other two, um, for people who aren't familiar with them? Um, Todd Colhep and Joshua Rudiger. Uh-huh. Yeah. Todd Colhep is a mass murderer and a serial killer. Todd Colhep is responsible for the Superbike Motorsports um, mass murder. I, I forget, I'm, I'm blanking on the year that it took place, but where people died, um, long story short, he bought a bike uh, which had been stolen and um, they made fun of him when he went to go back to get a new one. And I guess that's what set him off. And he went back and killed everybody that was inside. Um, and he also kidnapped um, a few people. Well, I guess 
I don't know if you'd say actually kidnapped other than Caleb Brown, but uh, there was a few people that died on his property. Um, there was a woman named Megan, um, Johnny, and I'm blanking on the other victim's name, but he had infamously tied up a woman in his uh, storage unit. I guess you could call it a storage unit for like 40 something days and she was rescued and long story short it turns out that he was this mass murderer and serial killer that has been living under the radar for you know over a decade he's known as the um, uh, amazon review killer right yeah yeah he was the amazon review killer yeah yeah and i have a four-part interview with him which i is is my favorite interview to date that i've done just because it's so in depth and thorough you know like he literally didn't leave anything out whether it was all bullshit or not that's up for interpretation yeah and then the other person um joshua Rudiger. he's a he's a vampiric murderer he's actually on trial for a second homicide that took place in 2020 in prison he uh is a schizophrenic he is is baby like you know he when you speak to him he's he's very childish childlike and um i just enjoy talking to him because he's always in a psychotic state where he believes he's a vampire and he has to drink blood and he's always doing this weird weird shit in prison like cutting himself and drinking his blood or cutting other people and drinking their blood and he's trying to get into a, a mental hospital right now from the this previous homicide that he had uh, committed in prison. But yeah, that's one of my favorite people to talk to just because he's in a state of psychosis, you know, 24 seven, which is might be kind of fucked up, but to me, it's just super interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I listened to that one and I was like, wow, how, how is it uh, talking to someone who, I mean, obviously I think for most of these individuals, there's, levels of mental illness but what it's what is it like to talk to someone who is in such a high level of psychosis where they think that they're they have like unworldly beliefs it's really surreal surreal to be honest because it's it's like okay i've asked him before do you believe you're mentally ill and he's like no no the vatican knows what i am and you know this and that he it's it's just it's just crazy really if like if you were on the phone with this guy or visiting him in person, sitting across from this guy or just hearing him talk about the people that he stabbed and has drunk their drunk their blood or has to survive to drink blood, it's just crazy to think about that there's people out there that exist. And, you know, thank God that this guy's in prison because who knows what he'd be doing if, you know, he were out on the streets. But I guess I would just say surreal more than anything that, you know, talking to somebody that's, in a constant state that just believes he's a vampire and a ninja assassin and all this crazy shit. Um, kind of going back to your murderabilia, uh, you're kind of the expert when it comes to uh, individuals like Sarah Eldredi. Um, how did you form a relationship with her and what can you tell the people who aren't familiar with with Eldredi, uh, what she's known for, the cult she was involved in, things like that. So Sarah Eldredi was the high priestess of the narco-satanicos, which translates to drug-dealing Satanists. So 
this is another crazy case. Um, it was basically a group of serial killers who were in a cult, like in a like a an occult cult, um, and they were they would um, kidnap drug dealers and they would sexually assault them and they would kill them, bind their bind their um, spirits or whatever you want to call it to objects, animals. Um, and Sarah would be present while these men would be, you know, tortured both physically, sexually, emotionally, mentally, all that. Um, and they made the mistake of kidnapping an American citizen named Mark Kilroy, which is what, you know, um, which is what landed to their downfall is they kidnapped Mark Kilroy from Brownsville, Texas, which is on the border in Texas between more, uh, Texas and Mexico. And they ended up killing this kid, you know, long story short, they were all arrested, prosecuted. Uh, this, this guy named little Seraphin was their, um, star witness in the case. And of course he, he got, uh, you know, witness protection, never did a day in jail or whatever. And, uh, Sarah is brought in away in a Mexican prison right now. Um, I believe she, she believes that she'll be out later than later, but she's supposed to be extradited to the United States file for, uh, Mark Kilroy's murder, should she ever be released. But how I got in touch with Sarah was I wrote her probably 10 letters over the course of maybe a year. And I didn't think that she got any of them. But the whole time that I was sending her letters, I was sending her photos um, of myself and writing on the back of them. And apparently in Mexico, if you have a photo, regardless if you have a letter with it or not, if there's writing on the back of the photo, they take the photo and the letter away. You'll you're able to read it, and then they give it back to you. So I tried one more time, and I sent a photo. I didn't write on the back of it, just thinking, you know, I'm just gonna send another one. And I finally get a a letter from her, you know, saying, "Thank you for writing. You know, um, I haven't been able to write you back because they've been taking your mail, yada yada yada." So the next letter I sent, I sent my phone number, and she calls me and. Then we start doing business together. Uh, I got package after package after package from her from Mexico. Her her girlfriend actually facilitated that. Um, and now I ha I have so many. I have boxes upon boxes of Algeretti signatures, signed magazines, note cards, paintings, um, anything and everything. Signed sugar skulls even from Mexico. <laughs> um, <laughs> But yeah, Sarah, Sarah Aldretti, that's one of my favorite cases too, just because it's like the Mexican Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but it's like real life, just gutter, dirty, you know. Yeah, uh, you've sold me some of the artifacts that you have related to her and um, she's. I think she's a pretty good painter. Um, but out of all the th things that I have, those are the ones that I'm like, oh, these might be cursed since she's like a real witch. And I'm not very superstitious or anything, but I don't know. All the people that call themselves witches, like she's the real deal. Um, and kind of going along with that, you actually have a necklace that she gave you that has a soul inside of it. What can you tell us about, about that, that? I do. I can get it real quick. I'm actually looking at it right now. Okay. So this necklace was given to me by Sarah Aldretti. Um, I probably can't zoom in on it, but there's animal blood on some of these seashells. And 
So this necklace supposedly has a Nigerian man's spirit inside of it that found, um, in Africa, and it was transported to Mexico, and Sarah had blessed it. Um, and I have instructions here. I'm supposed to use a, a cigar once a month and some tequila once a month. I'm supposed to um, inhale the cigar, blow it over it, then I'm supposed to spit some te- I'm supposed to spit some tequila over this once a month to bless it. <clears throat> um, this is one of my favorite items that I have. Nobody wants it. <laughs> yeah, you tried to sell it to a bunch of people, including me, and I was like, uh I said yes initially, and I was like, never mind. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. There was there's a few people that I wanted it, but then have let her chickened out when when it came to it, when it came down to it. But yeah, this is one of my favorite items. Whether you believe in it or not, like you said, she's a real witch. And whether there is like a Nigerian man's spirit in here or not, it's it's definitely a good story and you know, it's from a real life witch who literally helped bound people's spirits to objects and books and all that crazy shit. Does didn't she say that like any other adult that touches it will die or something like that? And only children they'll be die. cursed for life, but children can touch it, and I don't understand that one bit. <laughs> <laughs> and children can touch it, right? Yeah, children can touch it. Because they're pure or something. <laughs> yeah something like that i've I've never understood that i haven't spoke to sarah in like a year and a half she hasn't ever since we did our interview together she kind of got weird on me and i just talked to her through her girlfriend now through whatsapp but yeah i'm lucky i'm lucky that i, I still have a little bit of contact with her so has any other adult person touched touched that necklace um i don't think so to be honest no i've 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 offered to have people like wear it and touch it. People are like, nah, I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, well, you we you uh are definitely the Sarah Aldretti guy. Is there other uh inmates or individuals that you have a connection with or that you that you have a favor to towards? Um I used to really be in the Jack Spillman's case. Um, I really, I only have one piece from him though. He's the werewolf butcher in Washington state. He removed the vaginas or I, I guess, I don't know if that's exactly the right word, but he removed some of the genitals of two little girls and shoved them down their mouths and uh, killed uh, one of the moms of one of the uh, victims. And I used to be real real heavy into that case but i don't talk to jack anymore we had a little little falling out over some some bibles <laughs> <laughs> um but other than aldretti that's really the only case that i'm really like super super into that i have so much stuff of just laying around um talking about bibles you sold me uh a signed bible that was owned by ken bianchi as well as a satanic bible that sarah aldretti owned um what other bibles and you you mentioned Bibles. Do you have Bibles signed from other people, or within? I have, your- I, I have one more Satanic Bible signed by Aldretti. I have like a little pocketbook Bible signed by Aldretti. Um, that's it for Bibles. I've had multiple Bibles in the past. Like I've had signed Bibles from James Ruzica, Ken Bianchi, as you've mentioned, um, Pope Worthy. Um. 
a few a few other random names that I'm blanking on right now, but um Bibles are interesting to me, especially signed Bibles. That's why I, I, I like to collect them when I get the opportunity to, because it's kind of like an oxymoron, like having a serial killer sign a Bible. <laughs> um talking about Ken Bianchi, he's a he's a heavy name for those who don't know. He's one of the Hillside Stranglers. Um, how did you form a relationship with him? So that took me, that probably took the longest amount of time to form a relationship with him. And I hardly talk to him anymore now because um, it's a long story. He got in a lot of trouble sending me those Bibles and everything. He lost his job, his contact visits, his email privileges, everything like that. But for about almost 10 years, I uh, I would nonstop send him letters, emails, my phone number and Finally, one day he just responded and was like, Hey, what's up? You know, on my, on my email list. And we just formed a relationship from there. Most likely probably because he needed something at the moment. I mean, I was helping him out, um, financially a little bit, you know, like he would send me Bibles. I would send him a little bit of money here and there, or put some money on his commissary or on his media account or at the time he was engaged, I even bought a, an engagement ring for him. Of course, he sent me the money to send it, to, or he sent me the money to buy the the ring to send to his fiance at the time. And his fiance at the time got the ring and then jumped ship <laughs> as soon as as soon as she got it. So, but yeah, that's how I got that's how I got connected with Ken Bianchi, which has been the hardest uh, relationship to maintain like to date, just because of how he how he is. Um, outside of Unforbidden Truth, you also have another podcast with our our mutual friend uh, Taylor from Cult Collectibles, um, Murderbilia Exposed. Uh, what can you tell us about that podcast? Yeah, so Murderbilia Exposed is what it sounds like. It's it's about Murderbilia. We interview prisoners, other collectors. We talk amongst ourselves about. Uh, let's see what what have we done in the past we've done an episode called the death pile where you know um things that would get listed or things that have just been you know excess murderabilia we'll talk about we'll talk about um you know different projects we have going on we're, we're gonna have you on the show in the near future to talk about the documentary just basically anything revolving around murderabilia um we talk about and I've, we've recently been getting into inmate interviews which has been has been super fun, you know, getting uh, inmates thoughts on murderabilia and, you know, how it's being sold and how do you feel about people writing you just to gain a memento and, you know, so on and so forth. Um, One inmate that you guys have interviewed uh, is William Holbert, who you helped me get in contact with that I interviewed for this podcast. Um, What you, what can you tell us about William Holbert, AKA wild bill and, how did you form a relationship with him? So Wild Bill is a self-confessed uh, hitman out of Panama. He's actually an American. He's an American expat that went over there after he got into some legal trouble over here. And he ended up killing five people over there. He killed a family and then he killed two other people um, that he claims was done for the cartel. Um, I first met Bill through somebody on Facebook, actually, that wanted me to interview him. This was like two or three go and it just I don't I don't I didn't think that it was ever going to happen until one day I got a call from Bill and 
we set up an interview and we've probably done six, seven, eight interviews to date since then. Um, Bill's a pretty interesting, a pretty interesting guy. He's pretty charismatic. He has a lot of serial killer groupies, which is pretty fascinating. He, he likes to call them the, the wild Bill hoes. Um, he's a pretty interesting guy as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he's, he's definitely an interesting guy. Uh, you guys did an episode on hybristophilia with him, which, uh, is definitely an interesting topic. Uh, for those who don't know what hybristophilia is, can you explain that? Yeah, hybristophilia is the attraction to somebody that's committed a violent act, and it could be male or female. Um, like Richard Ramirez, Ted Bundy. Um, I guess you could even throw Dahmer in the mix. You know, um, just serial killer groupies that want to get fucked by somebody that's committed violent crimes or something like that, or or be in a relationship, which happens more often than not in the murder billy community that is during that interview what did what did wild bill have to say about hybristophilia um basically he basically normalized it and said that a lot of these women that he talks to are are you know average everyday women that have working jobs and you know are just attracted to people that commit violent crimes that there's nothing wrong with them that it's just something that they do and i guess to an extent that's that's true i mean i guess hyperstophilia is open to open to uh, interpretation you know i mean they could be con considered bad or good or just not just you know neutral altogether i mean as long as you're not hurting somebody physically i i don't think that it really matters who you're attracted to now if you're like attacking victims families or whatever then that's a different story uh, so moving moving on to our documentary, um, you invited me to uh, go out to Arkansas with you and 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 interview Terry Hobbs, the stepfather of Stevie Branch, uh, one of the eight year old boys that was killed during the Robin Hood Hills murders, which eventually moved on to being known as the West Memphis Three case. Um, how did you get involved with Terry Hobbs, and and where did the idea of this documentary come from? So I first uh st I first reached out to Terry Hobbs about probably about two years ago or so because I've always been fascinated with the West Memphis Three case and I uh I just reached out to him just wanting to do an interview for my podcast which I did um and I eventually was like hey would you entertain the idea of being a part of a documentary now originally I just went down there with like a little mini camera and I. I uh, recorded him basically asking the same questions that we did there. Um, and I've never done anything with that video, but I approached him again and I asked him, would you be willing to do like an actual documentary if I got somebody out here that knew what they were doing, you know, and he's like, yeah, sure. Why not? So, you know, long story short, we, I got him interested in doing something. I reached out to you. And then we got out there and started filming because I knew of of your work, your your films and your murderabilia show and tells. And I figured you would would be the the right person to, you know, do this with. And I think we got a lot of good content when we were out there. And I'm excited to see what it's gonna what the full you know project's gonna be like because we got about what seven or eight days worth of audio and video and 
I think it's going to be something spectacular. Yeah, we've got like 40 hours of footage or more that we have to sift through. But I think it was a, definitely a cool experience. And um, I'm just curious, like we went down, we went to West Memphis, we went to uh, the Robin Hood Hills. What was it like for you actually going to the crime scene, like walking on the pipe, going down to the ditch where the boys were found? Um, actually, before I even jump into that, for those who are unfamiliar with the West Memphis Three case, can you give a, give them some context on what it is? Yeah, so on May 5th, 1993, three eight-year-old boys, Stevie Branch, Christopher Byers, and Michael Moore all went out to ride bicycles. Uh, they all lived, you know, pretty close-knit to each other in the neighborhood. And they went missing at some point during the day, and there was multiple attempts of finding them, going to the police department, filing police reports. Um, fast forward to the next day, May 6th, there was three bodies that were found um, in a in a ditch in the bayou. And this would be known as the West Memphis Three case. Um, and there would be three people... There'd be three teenage boys tried, convicted, and then later on released under an Alfred plea. Now, an Alfred plea is something that it's a plea in which you admit that they have, I believe it's like a, they have evidence that can be used against you, um, and you admit that they can convict you or, or something to the extent. I'd have to look at the actual definition. Um, but that's the West Memphis Three case uh, in a nutshell. Yeah, and so these, so the three teenagers get released, and basically for those who are just kind of like hearing this, there's been. So you've got you've got uh, a lot of people believe that the three teenagers actually committed this crime, um, but then a lot of people think that they didn't, and so that kind of bears the question. If if the West Memphis Three did not do it, then who did? And there are lots of different theories out there over the past 30 years. Um, there's a lot of people that believe that um, a, a homeless man that it's been coined Mr. Bojangles uh, may have been involved because um, after some time after the murders, uh, a, a homeless man walked into a Bojangles restaurant covered in blood and um and was cleaning himself off in the bathroom and people called the police and gave blood samples like wet bloody rags to the police and the police ended up losing them and that that whole kind of area of the case kind of like fell cold um so there's mr bojangles as a potential suspect that people have there's also uh, Mark Byers, one of the fathers of uh, the father of um, of Christopher Byers, a lot of people uh, suspected he might might be involved. Um, there's also two teenagers, uh, Chris Morgan and Brian Holland, who were suspects for a period of time. The, and so there's that theory. And then there's the theory that uh, Terry Hobbs. Uh, may have been and uh david jacoby may have been involved in it too so there's all of these different avenues that people go down and have point fingers at who did what and um so we actually had the privilege to sit down and talk with terry hobbs uh and ask him the questions that people 
ask him questions about the accusations that have been made been made towards him related to the case and whether he actually did it or not. And so that's kind of like the, it was a, I want to thank you for letting me be a, a part of the project, you know, but, um, and, and get to talk to him. But I think that that's, that's the interesting thing about this case is that there's people who believe the West Memphis three did it. There's people that think that Mr. Bojangles did it. There's people that think that Mark Byers did it. There's people who think, uh, that Terry Hobbs did it, you know, and you can kind of go down the rabbit hole of each one of these things. And we were able to li literally go down the rabbit hole with Terry uh, last month, which was pretty cool. Um, but having actually, that's, that's one thing that I, I like to do is I like to go do what I call field trips and actually go to the places where this stuff has happened and, having you and I go to the Robin Hood Hills and actually go to the crime scene and go to the houses of these boys and things like that. How did that feel for you? It was pretty surreal, especially when we went down to the ditch. It was like, wow. I, I, I mean, I've seen, you know, the Paradise Lost movie, the opening scene where the bodies are there. And we were literally right there where the bodies were. And it was, it was pretty surreal. I mean, I've done field trips before too, but I've never been to any um, locations where the bodies have actually been discovered. Mm -hmm. So to me, it was pretty surreal and it was just mind blowing to say the least. I mean, I've been fascinated with this case almost as long as I have this filming case. So it, it was, you know, pretty crazy going down there and seeing the ditch and seeing where, you know, the, the boys' bodies were found. It, it just, Surreal would be the words I would use. Yeah, I definitely felt that way too, being down in the ditch. Like I remember being down in the ditch and looking up at the trees, like looking up at the sky and just imagining like that's probably one of the last things that those boys saw before they died. And it's, and, and uh, yeah, it just, there's so much mystery still to this case. Um, so I'm really excited to actually kind of be a part of its history and actually get to meet individuals associated with it. Um, but uh, for those who are interested in like learning more about the, the documentary and how they can be involved, what can you, you started a Patreon. Um, can you promote, can you promote that? Yeah. So we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash if trees could talk doc, I believe it is, or if trees could talk, um, and there's certain tiers that'll like, for instance, there's a general support tier. There's a tier in which you can um, be become a, an executive producer, um, and then a and then a uh, there's like thank you credit in the film. Um, gosh, I should have I should have pulled this up beforehand. Uh, there's you can get a signed book. The box full of nightmares, Terry Hobbs book signed by him. Um, you can get a movie poster signed by us and Terry. Uh, there's just so many different tiers. If you go check out Patreon, it'll pop up. It'll load up all the uh, the tiers that are on there, and it'll help us promote the project. You know, um, all money collected will go towards advertising or whatever. You know, whatever will help. You know, get this film out more once the once we're done with everything. Everything is said and done. Hell yeah. Um, I guess one last thing to cover before we come to a close is you said that you were a fan of horror films. Um, 
what are some of your favorite horror films? 2001 Maniacs is my all-time favorite horror film. <laughs> it's a good one, for sure. <laughs> the Exorcist. Uh, Jeepers Creepers. All the classics. Freddy, Jason, Chucky. I, I know a lot of people talk shit about Chucky, but I love Chucky. I grew up on Chucky, so there's not one bad Chucky movie. <laughs> I, I mean, except the, the ones that were just recently created, which suck, but... Yeah, I like Bride of Chucky is awesome. I love Bride of Chucky. That's probably my favorite one. Yeah, Child's Play 1 and Child's Play 2 are my favorite, hands down. Yeah, those are a lot of fun too. Um, Well, to come to a close, uh, plug plug your stuff. Um, wh- where can people find you? Where can they uh, listen to your podcast? All of that. Unforbidden Truth can be found on all podcast platforms as well as Murderbilly Exposed and True Crime Auction House is truecrimeauctionhouse.com where you can find serial killer mementos, infamous criminal signatures, and much more. Awesome. Hell yeah. All right, man. Well, I'm glad we were finally able to do this and uh, I'll obviously talk to you more. So thanks, man. Awesome. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Uneasy Train Explorers Club podcast. This podcast is the product of Putrid Productions, which also produces my YouTube channels, Cinema's Underbelly, where I analyze and review extreme underground cinema, as well as my channel, Murderbilia Show and Tell, where I share pieces of true crime relics from my personal collection and tell the stories behind them. Additionally, Putrid Productions also has its own distribution label, Vile Video Productions, where I release my films as well as the movies of other filmmakers within the extreme horror underground. So if you want to keep the putrefaction going, make sure to check out these other endeavors, as well as keeping a lookout for upcoming podcast episodes. Till next time, I'm Jonathan Doe, and this is the Uneasy Terrain Explorers Club podcast.